What's the most expensive movie ever made? And how did ladies' underwear lead to the first hot air balloon? <laughs> <laughs> Answers to those and other questions oh. coming up today on The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Okay, uh, what was the most expensive movie ever made? Is it a recent movie? Yeah, it's uh, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, which I think was the fourth in the series of Pirates of Caribbean. And it's a Disney film. And uh, it didn't help that Johnny Depp's salary alone was $55 million. Jeez. (laughs) Jeez, not bad salary for a 2011 movie that got really bad reviews. Wow. You know what the cheapest movie ever made was? No, what was it? Uh, It was a huge hit and made lots of money. So one of the least expensive movies. It cost $60,000 to make in 1999. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. What was it? It was the Blair Witch Project. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, that's right. That was uh, that was like the beginning of uh, reality. reality films. It is. It was the very beginning. And they had great reviews and made back $248 million after spending that 60000 Wow. That's a good return on investment. That was a scary movie. Okay, so how did ladies' underwear lead to the first hot air balloon ride? Well, (laughs) going back a bit, I imagine they had, you know, weren't there pantaloons or what were those Petticoats. Petticoats. Yes. And uh, they they were a bit flotatious. (laughs) You you know, you're on the right track. I made that word up. Now, this uh, is the uh, story of uh, the wife of Jacques Montgolfier. She washed a petticoat one day and hung it over a fire to dry, and the heat inflated that petticoat and caused it to rise. And Jacques Montgolfier and Joseph Montgolfier <laughs> launched the first hot air balloon in June 1783 at Anne, France. Hot air from a fire inflated the balloon, and it's believed they got the inspiration for that from Jacques' wife's petticoats. <laughs> Jacques. Who knew that women's underwear could lead to a major <laughs> well, advance well, in transportation? That is, that is I'm something. I'm sure women's underwear has yeah, slowed or yeah. stopped things. Yeah, they, wow. Okay, well, that that's kind of funny. What was the year with that? That was 1783. Okay. The first hot air balloon ride. Okay, Bob, what's the most hydrating liquid you can drink? I would think it's water. That's what I said. Yeah. But it's actually way down the list. Really? Near the bottom of the list. Yep. Okay. All right. The winner for the most hydrating, (laughs) you're going to love this, for the most hydrating drink is skim milk. You're kidding. No. It's sugar, protein, and fat. They slow the emptying of fluid from the stomach, and its sodium acts as a sponge, keeping water in your body. So it is the combination of the chemical elements of that drink. Of skim milk, and it keeps you hydrated longer than uh, anything else. Because you need a little of that low-level sugar for energy. But after that comes uh, Pedialyte. You know what that meant? Pedialyte? When the babies were babies, (laughs) Pedialyte was good for keeping them hydrated. Uh, And then there's sodas and juices with their higher content of sugars. 
also empty more slowly from the stomach than water hmm. for hydration. You know, the guys in football, they're always drinking uh, Gatorade. Gatorade. Right. Yeah, so that's better than water, too. Which was invented for that purpose, as a matter of fact. For hydration. Yes. Well, there you go. Skim milk, Bob. Speaking of athletes and athletics and games, here's a question for you. How far back does flipping a coin to make a decision go? Football games, for instance, start with the flipping of the coin to determine who gets the ball. Yes. I'll bet it goes back to those Roman coins, you know, the pieces of eight. It does go back to the Roman coins. No, pieces of eight were Spanish coins. Pieces of eight Pieces of eight were Spanish coins. And Roman coins were Roman coins. So they were (laughs) flipping back then, you know, who gets the biggest jug of water. Cut your losses and let's get to the answer, Marsh. (laughs) The truth is nobody really knows. (laughs) (laughs) That's... (laughs) Come on, you let me angle all that. No, what we do know is that using heads or tails to make decisions dates back to the 7th century B.C. and Romans. And the term they used was navia ot caput, meaning the ship or the head, because back then Roman coins had an image of a ship on one side and the head of the ruler on the others. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Okay, what do these decisions have in common? What to name Portland, Oregon, and who would be the pilot for the first man flight? Well, does it have to do with your coin question? Yes, it does. Oh, surprise. Yeah, yeah. They were both decided with a coin flip. With a coin flip. uh, That's how we decided to get married, wasn't it? Yes, heads? No, no, I don't think so. (laughs) It was a little more to the heart. Okay. But Wilbur and Orville decided who would be first to fly their airplane with a flip of the coin. Wilbur won the toss. Uh Uh-huh. But he stalled the plane and drove it into the sand. (laughs) After several days of repairs, Orville flew the plane and he made the first flight. Yeah. But up in uh, Oregon, two New England natives wanted to name their city after their hometowns. And Asa Lovejoy was from Boston and Francis Pettigrove from Portland, Maine. Portland won. I was going to say, that's kind of curious that there's a Portland on each coast, isn't there? Now we know why. Yep. Now we do. Yeah. All coin right. flips, coin tosses go back to 7th century B.C. or Fascinating, earlier. Fascinating, Bob. Fascinating. I thought so, Marcia. Okay, here's something relevant. What living creature today has the most eyes? Is it an octopus? No, we did or that. Is it, or is it a bee? No, see, Remember some... he, that octopus had, what, eight eyes or something? Yeah. Uh, is it a bee? A bee has a bunch of eyes? Yeah, no. Okay, what is it? The dragonfly does. Really? And you want to take a guess? How many? I'll say four. Yeah. One uh, for each side, one for the front, and one for the back. Very close. Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) 28,000. That was close. Thank you. 28,000 eyes on a dragonfly? I know. Some species have more than 28,000 lenses per compound eye, and they see 360 degrees, as you might expect. (laughs) I would hope so. That's what I thought. They are also... Fast flyers, because when you can see everything, and they can go fast, forward, and backward up to 30 miles an hour. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, that... that 28,000. Actually, that speed is almost more interesting than the eyes, you know, because yeah, the, the number 30? of eyes is just like boggles the mind, yes, you know? That's an optometrist heaven there. Oh, with could the... you imagine? Yeah. You could have your whole career <laughs> times 10 on for one. one dragonfly. Uh, we got another dragonfly. <laughs> I know you've only been working for 45 years, but would you like to take a crack at this? Okay. Okay, we all know that during the quarantine of the coronavirus, the COVID-19, there have been a lot of things have changed. There have been businesses that have been fired up, like we talk about Zoom, and there have been businesses that have crashed and burned. And I have to tell you about one that I'm sure you'll be sad about because 
you and our daughter Chelsea enjoyed one of these things a number of years ago, and it's the uh, Segway. That was introduced in 2001 and was uh, known as a pioneer in personal transportation. Yeah. And uh, they've decided to cease production. Because nobody's using them? Apparently, it never turned into what they thought it was going to be. They thought it was going to be selling in the hundreds of thousands, and it never did. Uh, Now, back in uh, 2010, the company's network uh, on their website said they had 250 dealers and uh, experience centers. They called it in 80 countries. But in 2015, it was sold to a Chinese company, and since then, it's just not done well. So So they're ceasing production of the Segway. I wonder why. I mean, it's not like you could take it to the store, but then how do you lock it up? Well, and, yeah. Uh, and it, you don't want to go on the road. And you don't, if you go on the sidewalk, you mow people down. It's an odd form of transportation. It's been called the most hyped invention since the Macintosh computer. <laughs> really? Yeah, the two-wheeled self-balancing yeah. namesake. Apparently, they've got other products. They have uh, actually e-bikes, you know, like uh, electric motorcycles and things yeah. like that. They make too. Okay. So they may be making other things, but they've decided the brand will no longer make its two-wheeled self-balancing namesake after 19 years it's been in business. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, you're right. Uh, we went on it. Way towards the beginning there. And you liked it a lot, didn't you? Yeah, we had fun. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. It was a nice way to get around. What percentage of Americans spent time outdoors more than once a week before the virus more hit? Than, who doesn't go outside more than once a week? That's amazing. But it, not many, huh? No. Okay, okay I'll, I'll say uh, 30%. Believe it or not, I think this is incredible. According to the Outdoor Industry Association, pre-pandemic, yeah. Less than 20% of Americans spent time outdoors more than once a week. That's nuts. We're a nation of such beautiful country and beautiful land, and 80% of the people spend most of their time indoors? That's so unhealthy. That's incredible. So less than one-fifth of Americans said they spent time outdoors more than once a week. Well, not anymore. Not anymore. Now that that virus hit, 18% say they're spending more time outdoors. Adult bike sales have risen 121% nationally. And in Vermont, sales of fishing license have gone up 50%. (laughs) Can't get there from here. (laughs) And travel agents are pivoting towards uh, planning uh, trips and excursions with smaller tours or even individual tours. They're calling it isolationist travel now. That's the new term. Really? Yeah. Well, that's uh, fascinating. Okay, what you got there? All right, I got one. All right. Kind of curious, I thought. Mm -hmm. Who are the only people, Bob, that a trained tracker dog cannot distinguish between. Now, these dogs are trained to smell your scarf or something and can find you, but they can't distinguish between these two people on who's who. Two types of people. Yeah. Stinky people (laughs) or not stinky people. Well, that's a fair guess. Yeah. What if they wear too much perfume? That would probably overwhelm the senses of the dog. But that's not the answer. I don't know. What is it? They can't distinguish between twins. You're kidding. No. They can't tell which one is which. Wow. Now that tells you something about that sense. Yeah. That sense of the they animal. They have highly, highly refined sense. I mean, even a dachshund has about 125 million smell-sensitive cells in its nose compared with humans' meager 5 million cells. Wow. So that's how exponentially more a dog's nose has. And these dogs that are trained for it cannot distinguish between identical From twins. one twin to another. Yeah. Huh. Interesting, I thought. So you could have two twins and you split up. Yeah. 
That's going to confuse the dog. Yeah, go to well, a different oh, Go over yeah. here. I don't know. Go over there. <laughs> here, what was the slogan on the first U.S. coin? This is funny. Is it? Yeah. I don't know. In George, we trust? No. No, that would be before that. The slogan on the first U.S. coin was, mind your business. <laughs> now, that's Gee. what was on the first continental dollar wow. in 1776. 17, that's a little harsh. It's believed it? to have been based on a design by Benjamin Franklin. Now, the phrase, mind your business, officially meant pay attention to your financial affairs to stay safe. It's likely the meaning we have today, mind your own business, also entered Ben's mind. He probably thought it was kind of funny to do that, but it was his idea. Well, that's, uh, that's very he interesting. He was a wily old guy. Yeah, you know, yeah. Lots of fun. When did it get uh, In God We Trust? Uh, don't know. Huh. My dad used to say, In God We Trust, all others pay cash. <laughs> oh, he was a <laughs> clever man. That he, was a cl- he was his own Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> okay, here's one. What is the origin of the name Oscar for the Academy Award? It was uh, somebody who was, I think, on the committee or who was a member of the Academy, and she said that she thought the statue looked like her husband. Close, but it's not quite right. Okay. It, uh, <laughs> the first trophy was known simply as the statuette. It was not until four years after the inaugural banquet that Oscar was christened. In 1931, Margaret Herrick, then the Academy's librarian, hmm spotted a copy of the statuette on an executive's desk. And she said, wow, he looks just like my Uncle Oscar. Oh, (laughs) her uncle. That's interesting. And her off-the-cuff remark was repeated around the academy, and the name stuck. Oh, isn't that interesting? A librarian's librarian. uncle. uncle, You know, there's uh, a librarian, and that's not the highest level position in an organization, but she influenced the entire entire history history of film. That's right. And I always thought it was an acronym for, you know, something. I've got another fascinating story about the human body. Did you know that your organs might reach 100 even if you don't? (laughs) Well, I hate to see him go on without me, but go ahead. Well, here's an interesting story. This is proof that it's possible. In 2008, a 19-year-old Turkish woman with liver disease was in urgent need of a transplant. Yeah. Her her liver started to shut down. Doctors rushed to save their life. What year was this? 2008. Okay. The only option was a liver that had already been turned down by other hospitals. Its previous owner was a 93-year-old woman. Oh, my gosh. But they had no choice. There were no other organs available, so they went ahead with a transplant. The operation took place at the Liver Transplantation Institute at Ionu University in Malatya, Turkey. Now, it was a success. Six years later, the recipient gave birth to a healthy baby girl with that old liver inside of her. And guess what? A year later, on her daughter's first birthday, the mother turned 26... And her liver celebrated its 100th birthday. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That's a good way to put it. I like it. So yes. few of us will ever know what it's like to have a liver as old as your great-grandparents. Yeah. But the interesting thing about this wow. is it's proof that some of our organs age differently than others if they're treated right. You yeah. Know? And some things age faster, something age so slower. So you wonder where she's going to be in 30 years with yeah. her liver. If, well, maybe or it, maybe it just keeps going. Maybe it will because new blood vessels can help it regenerate. Yeah. You know, livers can regenerate. That's know. what I was going to say. Isn't that the most regenerative it's, organ in your body? It's one of them, yes. Huh. In fact, a Stanford University geneticist likens it to a car. Overall, the whole functioning of a car declines, but some parts wear out faster than others. If your engine is starting to go, you can fix that. If later the body wears out, you can fix that and so on. Now, tell me this. 
What about specific organs? How do they fare? What's the most resistant to age? Uh, of all your organs? Yeah. Um, this is based on studies. Okay. Let me guess. Of all my organs. And this is a surprise to me. Yeah. It wouldn't be your heart. No. Because that, I think that's the first to go. Uh, your brain? No. Well, there hasn't been any brain transplant as far as I know. Oh, really? <laughs> Only in the movies. Okay. <laughs> here, here, say. <laughs> here's where it is. This is surprising. The cornea on your eye. That is the most resistant organ of all to age. Donor age apparently has little effect. So the biggest lesson, since the human body ages at different rates, in many ways, our annual birthdays mean little when it comes to our biological age. And that comes from a great article from the British Broadcasting System website. The title I said was, uh, your organs might reach 100 even if you don't. (laughs) (laughs) That is a compelling headline, isn't it? Let's take a break and we'll be back with more. In just a moment on The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. We're back and we're talking trivia on The Off-Ramp. Marsha, you got a question there? Why did movie audiences have to be paid to see the first silent movies in Hong Kong? Why did movie audiences have to be paid? Did it have to do with going into a black, quiet room, a dark room? Was that dangerous or had bad omen for people in, in China? Close, but they were frightened of the potential evil power of the moving spirits on the screen. And they refused to enter. They thought it was, you know, bad juju. Whoa, this isn't good. This is, <laughs> what you know, like the people, you couldn't take their picture because you'd capture their soul. Uh, yeah, so he had to pay the audiences. The owner of the movie theater put a lot of money into this, but he paid him because he wanted good press, right? It went on for about three weeks until everybody started saying, okay, maybe it's okay. They're not going to, we're not going to die. Because by 1913, he was so successful, he had 10 theaters in the colony. You know, that, that reminds me, in 2001, I was in Hong Kong, and I noticed there were buildings that had big round circles in them. Uh-huh. I mean, they're big squares or round circles where you could see right through the buildings. And, and several have said, what is that? And oh. it turned out there's a superstition that spirits could not get, get past through. these buildings. They wanted the spirits to be able to go in and out of the graveyards on the hills of the mountains. There. Well, that's cool. So you still see modern buildings with these big holes in the middle. Wow. They're elegantly designed, yeah. but big holes. Oh, I like that. That's uh, pretty interesting. about that I like. Yeah, although you'd think a spirit could just kind of go through If the it's building. a real spirit. If uh. it's an American spirit, <laughs> it can go anywhere. <laughs> Okay, here's a historical question. What does Vinci in Leonardo da Vinci's name mean? What is Vinci? Well, let's see. Of Vinci, uh, de Vinci. So is there a little town called Vinci? That's exactly right. It's a little Italian town where he was born in 1452. And in those days, the custom was to call people by the community that they were born in. So even though he grew up in Florence, Leonardo was always known as Leonardo of Vinci all of his life. Instead of... Day oh, Florence. you're just from that little backwater town over there. What can you do? You know, sure, it looks like a helicopter. Come on, it will never amount to anything. All the things that man did, huh. and he's from a little tiny town. So yeah. that proves you can come from small places and well, do great I things. Never doubted it. Oh, come on. Let's talk famous pen names. Okay. Okay. We all know that Mark Twain was really Samuel Clemens. Right. But see if you can guess these three female. Literary heavyweights. I'm going to give you their real names, and you try to tell me oh, their okay. pen name. Okay. 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 Let's start with Mary Ann Evans. Mary Ann Evans. Who is Mary Ann Evans? She was George Eliot. 
Oh, really? That's yep. George Eliot's real name was yep. Mary Ann Evans. Yeah, she was a novelist, poet, journalist, and leading writer of the Victorian era. George apparently carried a lot more weight in those days than Marianne did. Well, if you're George, I mean, yeah. people thought it was a man. You yeah. remember Little Women is a good example. That story is about a woman having trouble getting published yeah. because she's a woman. That's so. why George did it. Yeah. And it worked. Marianne Evans. Yeah, it was George Eliot. Wow. Okay, how about this one? Have you any idea who Mary Westmacott was? Mary Westmacott? Yeah. This how do you is, spell that? Uh, W-E-S-T-M-A-C-O-T-T. West Macott. I now, you uh, may have read some of this woman's uh, books or seen some of the movies. Is it Agatha Christie? Yes, no kidding. Yeah. And that's her, what was her real name again? Mary Westmacott. Wow. <laughs> okay. Now, here are three authors with the same last pen name and the same real name. Really? Yep. They were Acton, A C T O N, Acton, Ellis, and Currer, C U R R E R, Bell. That was their author's name. That's really? on I'm... all their literary works. There was Acton, Ellis, and Currer Bell. Don't know who. Okay, I'll give you a hint. They all had the real same last names because... They were sisters. They were sisters. So is it the Bronte sisters? Yes. No right. kidding. Yes. That's good. So you got it. So they used those names when they published their books. Yes. They didn't have the Bronte. No. Really? No. And the three sisters, Anne, Emily, and Charlotte Bronte wanted to keep their privacy and their initials. So you'll see Acton, Alice, and Kerr are Anne, Emily, and Charlotte. I'll be darned. <laughs> and they, too, thought they'd have better luck than they didn't think any men would read something by uh, a woman. Charlotte Bronte. Well, no, probably not. Yeah. Probably true at the time. Yeah. Okay, this goes back a little further than that. Did you know that Thomas Jefferson selected the building site for one of America's biggest corporations. Now, this is so different than what you think of Thomas Jefferson. He wanted a nation of farmers. Yeah. He didn't uh, like industry. He was very suspicious of business. Yet, he chose the site for one of America's biggest corporations, and it still operates in this neighborhood. What's the corporation? Can you tell me the state? Delaware. Famous. Uh, I don't know. DuPont. Oh, in 1797, Thomas Jefferson did a favor for an old friend, a French nobleman named Pierre. Pierre's son had come to America after the French Revolution. Jefferson knew the family. They'd helped him negotiate the treaty ending the American Revolution. Their name was DuPont. The younger DuPont had studied explosives manufacturing in France, and he wanted to set up his own gunpowder business in America. And Jefferson encouraged him to do that because uh, they went through the Revolutionary War, and it was hard to get the ammunition and stuff. So he encouraged the DuPonts to uh, set up a explosives manufacturing business on the Delaware Brandywine River. Central location to all states, plenty of water to run the powder mills. Okay. And it's no accident that when the first DuPont gunpowder went on sale in 1804, the federal government was the first customer. And who was president then? Jefferson. That's right. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, it's a little bit of uh, yeah, crony capitalism. Yeah, it started that's, way, that's, way that's back. That's the term. Yeah. It's who you know. That's right. All right. Why are flamingos pink? <laughs> because God made them that way. <laughs> no, he didn't. Really? No. God didn't make Flamingos pink? <laughs> you mean all the all the flamingos we've seen that are pink, even those down in Mexico and those places, those are fake? No, they're not fake. There's a reason why they're pink. Okay. Well, <laughs> well why are you they? Look, you look befuddled, I my friend. I am befuddled, your friend. I am your friend, and I am befuddled. Well, it's their diet. 
Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They really like shrimp and other invertebrates, but mostly shrimp and algae. And what they eat turns their fluffy little bodies pink. You're kidding. No. I don't know. What if they... How did they know? They do a controlled study, and we're going to feed this one chicken. See what <laughs> happens to him. So what color are they when they're born? They're white or they're gray. Hmm. And they stay that way for a couple, three years. And uh, after their diet gets uh, saturated, they turn pink. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, you know, this is 4th of July week coming up next week. Mm-hmm. Hard to believe, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Jeez. Okay. So I'm going to end with a few uh, presidential things here. Okay. Okay. One of my favorite historical synchronicities is that founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, who were frenemies their whole lives, (laughs) died within hours of each other on the 4th of July, 1826. But did you know there was another president who died on that auspicious date, the 4th of July, just five years later? No, I didn't know that. Can you name him? Want to take a guess? One of the early guys. Yeah. Madison would be another one. Monroe would be another one. Oh, you, you lifted your head when I said that. It's James Monroe. Ah. <laughs> yeah, that was a tell, Marsha. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll try to remember that. That is correct. James Monroe. But isn't that the earliest presidents that they would die on the 4th of July? I, I don't think that's coincidence. I I'm think doing... it's fascinating that that really did happen. Yeah. It really is fascinating. It is. All right. I have a quote. Who said, no president who performs his duties faithfully and conscientiously can have any leisure. To me, that sounds like FDR. Doesn't it? Yeah. But no. No, it isn't. Who was it? It's James K. Polk. Oh, really? Our 11th president and namesake of our little neighborhood here. At Polk Street. He pretty, <laughs> he pretty much lived by that quote and didn't take much time off. He worked 12 hours every day. And over the course of his whole four-year term, he only took 27 days off. Holy cow. That's just like, uh, how many weekends is that? Not many for four years. And I I think he actually did die shortly after he left office. Yeah, I was exhausted, I would think. Okay, I got one little uh, last presidential factoid. Okay. Not a question. As a former reporter myself, I love this. John Quincy Adams used to take a nude swim in the Potomac River every morning. And a reporter once sat on his clothes until he gave her an interview. <laughs> <laughs> hey, a female reporter, too, yeah, the way you described yeah, it. Yeah, I know. It's a, it's a double win. One, she had uh, some chutzpah, and uh, two, they had female reporters back there. And here's a fun thing to wind up on. We are talking about founders of the country. Did you know this? This is interesting. Aaron Burr's descendant goes kayaking with Alexander Hamilton's great-great-great-great-grandson. No, Oh, my goodness. For the 200th anniversary of the Burr-Hamilton duel, Aaron Burr's Antonio Burr and Hamilton's Douglas Hamilton, a fifth great-grandson of Alexander Mm. Hamilton, reenacted the scene in Weehawken, New Jersey, and then they went kayaking together. Wow. That's pretty cool. Good story. They originally met at a party and only put together their historic connection during some small talk. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It's like they were destined to meet one another. Then they went off and saw the play Hamilton together. <laughs> I don't know if they went that far. Yeah. So you got a joke for the end of the show here. Yeah. During these coronial times, uh, <laughs> you have to think about the best ways to keep your hands off your face. Mm-hmm. And the answer is have a glass of wine in each hand. Oh, <laughs> 
<laughs> that sounds as good as any. <laughs> I thought so. Could it be a mixed drink, though? That's what I'm asking. <laughs> sure, honey. Okay, a Whatever. mixed drink. Well, let's go off and do that. And uh, <laughs> we hope everybody's enjoyed right. today's it's, version. It's about that time. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. And this has been The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.